0: On today's show, we're going to talk about Jennifer Aspenson, as well as Judith Ann Neely, the young bride turned serial murderer. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the bo- Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Stan. And I'm Drew. And we are so glad that you are here today. Yes. <laughs> and we are still using a loner computer and we are using a separate mic again because our mic wouldn't work. Yeah, so we're basically touching nose to nose. Yes. Which ain't pleasant. Mm, not with his breath stinking like it is. It's not. <laughs> wow. Anyway, um anyway, my dog just ate shit and it smells better than his. <laughs> Literally. That's not that's not true. Oh, it's true. This is true crime. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Only the facts, baby. Only the facts.
1: So if I what if like you died from from that? Like you smelling another person's breath, would the person be charged?
0: With well, if they're stupid enough to say that's why they died. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, I think it's your turn to go first, Drew. Is that correct? I think it is. All right. Okey well, go dokey. ahead. What you got for us?
1: My story's on Jennifer S. Benson, and the um, killer's name is Andrew Ordialis. Well, anyways, I'm going to yeah, get on into it. Yeah, I'm going to get on into it. Because the killer killed multiple other people. And she was just the um, person that got kidnapped but got away. So anyways, she was standing in line in the shop. She looked out the window just as her bus pulled away. Oh no, she panicked. It was September 27th, 1992 and she was 19. In 10 minutes, she was due to start a night shift caring for disability kids. And that was the last bus of the night. Outside, a car pulled up and the driver rolled down his window. "'Hey, do you need a ride?' he said. Her initial reaction was to say no, but she was worried she'd be fired if she was late. Besides, he looked totally harmless to her, so she climbed into his car, which is a bad mistake. When he dropped her off, he asked for a number. She wasn't interested in dating him, so she reeled off a fake one and forgot all about it. The next morning, though, when she left work at 6 a.m., the man was waiting outside again. How about I give you a lift home, he said. She took him up on the offer, and they set off. Then suddenly, he pulled over. He grabbed her by the hair and shoved her head into the dashboard. That's when she saw a gun and some thick twine. Next thing she knew, he pulled her hands behind her back and tied them together. It all happened so fast. Is this a joke? She cried in shock. Shut up, bitch! He screamed. As he pulled away, she realized they were heading into the remote desert. Eventually, he parked the car, and she knew that he was going to kill her. But... It wasn't the thought of him killing her that was terrifying. It was what she, what he was going to do to her beforehand. He climbed onto her seat and started punching her. Then he used the knife to cut off her shorts and underwear. I'm in hell, she thought as he tried to rape her. Thankfully, he couldn't do it. Tell me you love me, he ordered. I love you she said with as much meaning as she could muster. But it didn't come out right, and so he shoved her underwear down her throat and tied her bra around her mouth, gagging her. I love you. She choked desperately. But he started strangling her. Unable to breathe, she closed her eyes. She didn't want his face to be the last thing that she saw. I'm dying today while my friends and parents are sleeping, she thought, while another lady at work is helping with the children. I'm in the middle of the desert being murdered. Everything went white and she remembered being lifted out of the car. Then he was banging her head to wake her up. He wants to torture me some more, she realized in horror. All she could think was that she was going to die. Next, he went to the boot and got out a paper bag full of knives. She couldn't let this happen. With her bare hands still behind her back, she started running for her life. But he caught her and dragged her by the hair across some rocks. As he pulled her onto her feet, she was determined not to plead for her life. Instead, she looked him right in his dark eyes. You're a coward, she said. Kill me! As the monster shoved a gun into her mouth, she hoped it would be over quickly. But instead of putting her out of her misery, he threw her into the boot of the car and slammed it shut. As he started to drive, she had a surge of energy and somehow managed to break her wrist free. Seeing her chance, she clawed at the carpet until she she found the latch. When the car slowed, she jumped out. Covered in blood, she ran as fast as she could. By now, she'd be tortured for two hours. Daring to look back, she saw him chasing her down in the middle of the road with a machete. Thankfully, a truck stopped and two U.S. Marines pulled her inside. He has guns and weapons! She sobbed. They drove her to a service station where the police were called. He's a killer, she told them. I'm sure he's done this before. While police measured a bite mark on her neck, they couldn't find any other evidence, and her attacker remained on the run. Over time, the wound healed, but the mental scars did not fade. She began self-harming, saw a psychiatrist, and was put on medication. He had her purse and driver's license, and she was so terrified that he would come after her, so she used to even sleep under the bed so that he couldn't find her. Then there was some light in all that darkness. She had a beautiful baby girl. She never wanted her to wish she had a different mom, so she, so she taught her eyes to see only the beauty in the world. Five years after the attack, she was watching her daughter playing when the police came to the door. We think we found the guy who did it, she was told. At the station, they showed her some photos of suspects. She recognized his evil eyes immediately. His name is Andrew Ordialis. the detective said. He is a serial killer. Former U.S. Marine Andrew Ordealis was arrested in November 1996 when police saw him in an area known for prostitution. Searching his vehicle, Officer Warren Fryer found a gun, which he confiscated. Five months later, by chance, Officer Fryer was sent to a hotel where Ordialis was arguing with a prostitute or sex worker. She told him that Ordealis had taken her to Wolf Lake and wanted to handcuff her and bind her with duct tape. Fryer recalled two unsolved murders where bodies were found in Wolf Lake. The gun was tested, linking Ordealis to the murders of Laura, Cassandra, and Lynn. Within hours of his arrest, he confessed to five more. In 2002, Andrew Ordealis, then 37, appeared in court in Illinois where he was convicted of murdering Laura Ulaki, 25, and Ann, and Lynn Huber, 22. Two years later, he was found guilty of killing Cassandra Coram, 21. He was sentenced to death, but the death penalty was <laughs> abolished in 2011 in Illinois, and of course his sentence was reduced. To life without parole. But afterwards, Ordialis was extradited to California where he is still awaiting trial for the murders of Robin Brandley, 23, Julie McGee, 30, Mary Ann Wells, 31, Tammy Irwin, 18, and Dennis Manny, 32, as well as what he did to Jennifer Aspenson. If convicted, He is eligible for the death penalty there.
0: So, that's all I've got for you. All right, well, I am going to do Judith Ann Neely. As I said, she was the young bride turned serial murderer. Okay. Judith Neely was 15 years old when she married known criminal Alvin Harris, a cold-blooded killer who kidnapped and tortured people. He was 26, she was just 15. Together, they were a match made in hell. Alvin Howard was madly in love with Judith Ann Neely. If you could really say that. I mean, whenever he's 25 and she's 15, I don't really think it's love. Oh, he's 26. Oh, 26, excuse me. (laughs) I still don't think it's love. No, No. The troubled daughter of a large family from Tennessee. No stranger to trouble himself, Alvin had been committing petty crimes and stealing cars throughout his young adult life. Soon after meeting Judith, Alvin left his wife and three children. What a stand-up guy. And he married Judith in the summer of 1980. The two began a life of crime together, committing armed robberies as they traveled across the South. A botched robbery at a Georgia mall briefly put the pair behind bars. While incarcerated, Judith, who was pregnant, gave birth to twins. Upon their release, Alvin and Judith reunited and their criminal actions took a turn for the sinister. On September 25th of 1982, Judith spotted 13-year-old Lisa Milliken at River Bend Mall in Rome, Georgia. She convinced the young girl to join her and Alvin at a motel near Scottsboro, Alabama. Now. I don't know who her parents were, and I'm not saying they were terrible parents, but Lisa was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody convincing me to go join them at a hotel in a different state at 13 years old. Exactly. Over the following... oh, Upon arrival, Judith and Alvin seized upon Lisa. Over the following days... They raped and tortured their victim before they eventually murdered her. On October the 4th of 1982, Judith targeted a young, engaged couple named Janice Chapman and John Hancock. She claimed to be taking them to a party. In reality, though, Judith led the couple into the woods, and that's where Alvin was waiting. After shooting John Hancock... (laughs) I'm sorry, but just that <laughs> name, Hancock. Like, you've got your cock in, you your, got, your, yeah, got in your hand. Yeah, yeah, cock in your hand. Okay, after shooting John Hancock and leaving him for dead, Judith and Alvin kidnapped Janice and brought her back to their Alabama motel room. They again tortured and murdered their captive. Despite being shot, however, guess what? John Hancock had survived the attack. He was able to report the crime to the authorities. On October the ninth of nineteen eighty-two, Judith Neely was arrested. Alvin was apprehended a few days later. Though both were sent to prison, Judith Neely was presented as the mastermind behind the killings, which is weird because she's the female. Alvin avoided the death penalty by pleading guilty to murder and aggravated assault. Judith, however, was not so lucky. She was convicted of the murder of Lisa Milliken and sentenced to death in 1983. The conviction made Judith the youngest woman to be sentenced to death in the United States. After a lengthy appeals process, of course, Judith Neely's sentence was commuted to life in prison. She continues to spend her life in jail. Alvin lived out the rest of his days behind bars, and he died in November of 2005.
1: 2005,
0: huh? Yes. Now, the true crime author Thomas Cook, he cracks open this twist case in a book called Early Graves. And this was drawing from police records from the district attorney and investigators. And he presents a gut-wrenching account of Alvin and Judith's relationship and their descent in the darkness. And this is an excerpt of that book, Early Graves. The brown Dodge had moved steadily up the mountain, towards the canyon, then swung right onto a winding road, heading west until it passed under a net of power lines, then stopped a few yards beyond an isolated picnic area, a place for families to rest. For them to eat, observe the high granite walls. So, you pulled on down by the picnic tables, Smith said. And you and her got out of the car and there was some trees off to the right. Where were your children? Asleep in the car. Where was Lisa? Well she was in the front seat, handcuffed to the door. Judith Neely said. She stayed there while I got up and looked around. <laughs> That Neely's children were sleeping in the back seat was harder to imagine. In her telling, they seemed to always sleep and never be awake to see anything. Had they never awakened to see the strange, frightened girl in their presence? Had they never wondered who she was or why she was trembling as she lay curled on the hard motel room floor? Or maybe sitting, handcuffed to the car door? Perhaps they had slept through it all, he thought. But one child had been awake throughout, and he found himself focusing on her, a 13-year-old girl handcuffed to the car, silently watching as Neely paced the area, large and looming in the distance, perhaps stopping here and there to lean cautiously over the canyon wall, glance down, and then back up at Lisa. Igu knew what she was looking for, a place out of the way with a sharp edge, a precipitous drop. But he wondered if Lisa had known that too as she sat in the car, listening to the little hissing breezes that seemed never entirely to abandon the canyon edge. Perhaps instead, Lisa had tried to tell herself that Neely was looking for something else, a place where she could safely let her go or maybe let the children out to play or much more simply, perhaps only a mountain flower to bring back to them something soft and pretty to greet them when mountain, they walk. A mountain flower? Yes. <laughs> but if Lisa had harbored such comforting hopes, they were quickly to be dashed. What happened after you went back to the car, Smith asked. I told her to get out, ne- Neely said, and I took her over to the tree, and I told her to lay down right there, and I told her I was going to give her a shot, to put her to sleep, So I could leave and she wouldn't know where I was going? Lisa did as she was told. Neely continued, and while she lay on the ground, handcuffed to a tree, Neely bent over her and gave her a shot in the left side of her neck, pressing down on that small black plunger, releasing a caustic drain cleaner, liquid Drano, into Lisa Milliken's throat. Ow. Ow. He closed his eyes slowly as he listened. He could almost hear her tiny moan. The liquid Drano didn't work, Neely went on. So I got liquid plumber. <laughs> there followed another shot on the other side of the neck, but it didn't work either. Lisa continued to lie face down on the ground, Neely said. She was moaning softly and complaining that the shots were hurting her. They were hurting more. They were hurting even more. Neely administered another shot, this one into Lisa's left arm. Then after a short interval, she released another shot into her other arm. Neither of them worked. And so the next one went into Lisa's right ass cheek. And still another one in her left ass cheek. And still, it didn't work. Well, she said it was hurting, Neely said matter-of-factly. But she's still alive. The shots, they just wasn't killing her. The investigator glanced toward the window. It was mid-October, but the cold outside the room seemed like nothing compared to the cold within. The coldness within Neely's heart. Why did you think about liquid plumber and Drano? Because it had lie in it. So at this point, you had given her six different shots, the investigator said. Was she handcuffed at this point? Do you know how long you waited to see if it was going to do anything? Well, the first one she was handcuffed, because I didn't know what it was going to do, Neely explained. I kept them on her because she might get violent with me. Oh, it's probably about a half hour. I waited. The investigator feels his breath stop. Half an hour? Terror lengthened second into days. He could not imagine the eternity of half an hour. Did the shots have any effect, the investigator asked? Well, she said they burned. She said it was. she was real cold. She wanted me to give her a shirt and let her lay down. Did you? Well, hell yes. I ain't a monster. Lisa was burning and she was cold, but she wouldn't die. And that is just an excerpt. I really recommend getting that book. This case is terrible. I mean, it would be horrible to have drain cleaner put in you. You know, but, bad that one. Yeah, hurt. that was one of my sources of this book. And I would freak. It really out. goes into extreme details. I mean, it is really good book. And again, that book. What
1: is it, Stanley? Huh? What book is that?
0: Early Graves. Okay. Early Graves by Thomas H. Cook.
1: I'm not very fond of reading. I books. know.
0: But if you were, <laughs> you could that, always download the audiobook.
1: And that would be great, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I'm more of a vivid listener. A who? A vivid listener.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I create my
0: own stories, man. Yeah, you do.
1: <laughs> Anyways. Like
0: the dream you had.
1: What did I dr- oh yeah, that was some crazy stuff the
0: sorority party, and everybody had, was wait, naked. Wait,
1: I had a okay, there was a dream I snuck out uh to a sorority party, but there was like four guys and only two girls, and everybody was naked, and everyone was just passed out drunk, and then somehow I got into a river that was that was um. Going real fast, you know, and I was I was stuck in the car and <laughs> couldn't get out.
0: And this is what I have to listen to. These are the stories that he so, has.
1: So I was drowning, and then eventually, Jeez somehow, Christ. I made it to, before the waterfall got me, I made it to the side and was able to escape.
0: <laughs> anyway, folks, so Drew, which do What's you up? think is the worst? Um, of what we talked about today. I'll go ahead and answer. Personally, I, know, I feel like, okay, well, like yours. Mom
1: was probably more traumatic.
0: I gave you time to answer first and you didn't. Wait,
1: mom was probably more traumatic to the victim. Yours.
0: My victim didn't live Yours did they? was
1: more hurt, I feel. I like
0: think that. mine was very traumatic of an experience yes, getting yours, killed and then they got killed. Yes, yours yeah, have a little. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Mine was more like um. Because she did not the story. At le- yes, it was more terror as far as him kidnapping her and hitting exactly. her. Exactly, it's more the scary. But at least he wasn't able to rape her, and you know
1: that. that yeah, yeah, like that. I just thought that it would be cool reading the story. You know. Oh, but
0: anyways, so y'all, listen up. What. You can go to our website. It's called com. Yes. There you can listen to us. You can comment. You can leave us a message. Leave us some suggestions. But I really want y'all to tell a friend, get our podcast out there. Also, we're going to the True Crime Podcast Festival July 13th. Hope that you're going to. It's at the Marriott in Chicago. On the magnificent mile. Yeah. I'm looking forward yes, to yes. meeting some podcast other podcasters. There's over eighty.
1: That'd be great. Like
0: Red World Blonde, Generation Y. Um, our True Crime Podcast.
1: Yep. And thank y'all, by the way.
0: Yes, we love them. But we do have two promos for you today. Yep. First one is Mr. Woody Overton from Real, Real Life, Life Real, Real Crime. crime. And it's a really great podcast. He's a former ex-cop and everything is just first-hand experience. He doesn't look anything up like we do. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so go check him out. Also, he has a Facebook group that we're a part of with a private group. And that's also real fun. It's real life, yep. real crime. Look that up. And
1: also, we um, have another promo by Cambo from True Crime Island. It's also a great podcast. He's from Australia, guys, so go give that a listen,
0: too. And right now, we'll let you hear about both of these from the people themselves. Yes. Hello, I, I love Make me mean, oh, Lord in me. Woody Overton, host of Real Life Real Crime, the podcast. Join me each week to hear true and unscripted stories of the cases I actually worked during my career as a major crime investigator in South Louisiana. Go to realliferealcrime.com where you can listen to each week's episodes and find links to our social media. I appreciate y'all. And don't <laughs> let me catch you down on listening to true crime well so do i If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. And maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode. Plus there's links to iTunes and social media. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island.